We've been going through the holy history. The theme for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of these events that took place with Israel in the Old Testament are not just history, they're his story. It's God's interaction and intervention in human history. God's plan to bring the whole earth to himself, to bring all the people of the earth to be a part of his kingdom. So for the last little while, we've been walking through the Old Testament, uh, not going verse by verse, certainly, but we've been going story by story and covering the high points of what we call the holy history. So God interacted, intervened, and moved through the people of Israel throughout this time period that uh, we have recorded in uh, the, the uh, 39 books of the Old Testament. And there is a verse that has been the theme for our entire uh, message series here, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And it says, these things happened to them as examples. As what? And were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this isn't just a bunch of rules, right? It's not just a bunch of stories. It says, these things happened to them. C.S. Lewis liked to call the events in the scripture, uh, he liked to call them uh, real mythology. Mythology, what we usually associate with, uh, with stories that uh, were told in the ancient world to try to uh, explain the world that they were in. But uh, C.S. Lewis said, no, these the, the, the stories have a mythological power to them, right, or scope but they actually happened. It's real history. These things did, in fact, happen to Israel. And there have been those, you know, if you read certain uh, skeptical scholars who try to doubt various things in the Old Testament, but it usually comes right back around to proving itself to be true through archaeology and other things. Uh, that's the beauty of the Holy Land. You can go over there today and you can walk right through the, the ruins of these, these actual places. They weren't just made up. This wasn't an ancient version of Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, I think that, you know, that we've gotten to this place today where we love stories. We love to read. Well, some of you don't like to read, but, um, we love to watch movies, right? And, you know, we talk about the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC, whatever it's called. And, you know, as a, that we create all these, you know, the, the Star Wars universe and all these different uh, story patterns that are created. But this is holy history. This really happened. But rather than it just being dead history, you know, I don't know if, you know, maybe you enjoyed history when you were uh, going to school or if you are going to school or maybe you did not. But, uh, you know, you can learn lessons from history, certainly. But God has specific lessons that he wants us to learn. So we've come all the way to the point now where the people of Israel have gone in and they have taken the land. The, the Lord removed the land from uh, the, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and all these other peoples in the land who he, the Lord says specifically, I'm not giving this land to you, Israel, because you're better, right? Um, but because they're worse. And so Israel proved herself initially not to be better. And those first, that first generation, the we could call them the slave generation because they had just come out of Egyptian slavery. They just did not have the faith or the courage to go in and take the promise. 
And God said, but your children will. And sure enough, they did. And I like to call that the Joshua generation. They were obedient. They were faithful. They went in and they did their duty. They did what it, w- what it would take to, to take the land. It really, you know, if I compare generations, uh, it reminds me a lot of what we call the greatest generation in this country. Uh, those folks are rapidly uh, passing away. We had one a member of our congregation who was a part of that generation who uh, went and uh, fought on the Japanese front in World War II. But those folks did their duty. Now, that didn't mean that they were just super righteous. Uh, you know, they had their own issues. And, you know, if you have grandparents or great-grandparents that are from that generation, you know that they're not perfect. Um, but neither can you just uh, class somebody with a generation and assume an individual has all of the qualities or characteristics of that class. But nonetheless, something that I think is distinctive uh, to the greatest generation is their dedication to duty. They did their duty. Um, they were and are people of their word. If somebody in that generation makes you a promise, buddy, they're going to keep the promise. Right? You can cascade down any of the more recent generations, and depending upon, you know, how recent it is, uh, it is unlikely that someone who makes you a promise is going to keep it if they're, if they're younger. Now, that maybe that's somewhat a product of being younger, but I'm guaranteeing you, these people were like this when they were younger, too. So uh, they really remind me of the Joshua generation. So this Joshua generation goes in and they do their duty and they, they took up courage. Man, the people that fought in World War II were courageous, were they not? I mean, you know, the, some of the things that they faced, you know, we're screaming and staying inside over COVID-19, all right? Now, I'm not going to relitigate that whole thing again, but the reality is we're super scared of things that they would have been like, what? No, not really, Okay. These guys went out and fought, and that's what happened with the Joshua generation. They fought, and they took the land. Now, they got a little comfortable toward the end of their fighting, and they left some of the people who they were supposed to remove from the land. They left those people there, and those people became a problem for them. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, these peoples that the Lord was was moving out of the land, uh, they got a little comfortable there at the end, and they let some of them stay. Further, they also allowed some of the altars to their false gods to stay, and this became a fairly serious problem in the long run. So, Uh, I've got a brief outline here to take you through, and uh, I want to look at what happened to them, and then I want to make application to us. So number one, the people of Israel did not destroy the Canaanite altars to false gods or finish driving out those idolaters. So broadly, Canaanite just refers to anybody that lived in that land, right? Now, there's some discussion as to whether there was an actual group of people called Canaanite, but nonetheless, all of these other names, if you've read the Bible, you've encountered them before, right? The the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Amorites, all of these different people names. These were all peoples that lived in the land, and they were pretty disturbing, pretty disgusting. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the, the sexual sins that the, the Lord prohibits specifically and very explicitly in the book of Leviticus, these people were committing those sins. And it's disgusting, and I won't go into that. But as I've said before, uh, make a little run through um, Leviticus 19 through about 22, and you'll see some of the horrific things that were going on. And the Lord saw fit to be very explicit about you know, some of the things that I, I remember reading some of these these prohibitions, these sexual prohibitions when I was younger, and I was like, oh, who in the world would even think of that? 
much less do that. These people were not just thinking of it. They were doing it. And the Lord said, we're done. Okay. We can't just do whatever we want to do, guys. Hey, we can't just make up morality and say, well, this is what I want to do. The Lord has a set of standards. He created you in a specific way. And so if you're going to live a peaceful, successful life and have any hope for eternal life, then we've got to receive Jesus and his grace and forgiveness, and then we've got to live in accordance with those standards. There is a way things are supposed to be. You don't make it up as you go along. Amen? All right. So um, in the places where Israel was strong, they made the inhabitants of Canaan into forced labor. So they said, ah, oh, we don't need to kill them. We don't need to get rid of them. We'll just make them service, Right? So they found a reason to keep them in the land. Where Israel was weak in certain territories where they were, they were weaker, um, they were forced to live alongside those Canaanites, all right? Number two, Canaanites were thorns in Israel's side and their gods were a snare. Now we come to the scripture that uh, this, is, uh, this is coming from, and this is Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, the angel of the Lord, that is Yahweh, the, if you see Lord in your Old Testament, and it's, it's uh, capital L and then lowercase caps, O-R-D, then that's referring to God's personal name, Yod-Heh-Bav-Heh, we think it is pronounced Yahweh. Now, the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. God doesn't break his promises. Amen? Man, that's really good. We can be promise breakers, but God's always a promise keeper. Verse 2. And as for you, you shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this thing that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out uh, from you, but they will become like thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people raised their voices and wept. So they named that place Bokim, which means a place of weeping, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. So even then, even when they made mistakes, even when they didn't complete the task, they, they were repentant. And again, this is this Joshua generation that I am referring to, right? Number next, Israel disobeyed the Lord. Why? Okay, were they just lazy? Um, you know, did they just want these people to be their servants? Uh, did they fall into uh, some sort of idolatry immediately? Um, they chose to disbelieve that Yahweh alone is God. You see, that's, that's the Shema, okay? That's the, the fundamental confession among uh, the Jewish people today. Shema Israel, right? Shema is a word in Hebrew that means listen or hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. These folks just didn't get it figured out. Um, they lived in a polytheistic world. That means a world where people believe in many gods. And further, they believed in territorial gods. So there would be a god that would be over a particular people in a particular territory. So there was a belief among these people if they were not 
careful to remove that belief. This is what they inherited from their history and their past. There was a belief that you needed to serve these other gods if you were in their land. So they thought, well, Yahweh saved us from Egyptian slavery. He's going to be our protection. But if we want provision, then we need to serve these gods in the land, right? If we want wealth, if we want to succeed, then we need to serve these gods. Well, the primary two, and Israel had problems with these gods for literally hundreds of years, were Baal and Ashtoreth. And that's that's uh, spelled and stated variously. I won't go into the, the history, but Baal and Ashtoreth were, were consorts, right? Uh, Baal was the male god. Uh, Baal is just actually a word that means lord, So Baal was the male god, Ashtoreth was the female god. Perversely, the statue or the idol of Ashtoreth was in a phallic symbol. So this is a female deity that is, that is, um, recognized in a phallic symbol. So you can see what kind of perversion we're dealing with. Further, in order to worship these gods, they uh, would offer sacrifices, but they would also get involved with cult prostitutes and have sexual uh, orgies essentially before this God. Now, I know this is all disturbing, uh, or at least hopefully it is, but I want you to understand what these people are embracing. These are fertility gods, right? Uh, this is the worship of sex and success. Do you know another nation that worships sex and success? I do. Well, we may not erect a statue, right, uh, that, you know, we call Baal or Ashtar or whatever, but we definitely bow down to wealth, mammon, and the desire to succeed, to be recognized, all those sorts of things, right? So their problem was, it's twofold, right? There's, there's two sides to the coin. Their problem was they would not say that Yahweh is the only God and they were willing to embrace these other gods. Was there a pull or was there a push? Was there doubt over here and then there's a little voice over here? Or was this there a draw over here that made them say, well, maybe I doubt? Yeah, probably a little of both, okay? They wanted what these false gods offered. This is what Satan does all the time, by the way. He's called the father of what? Lies. He lies all the time. Offers all sorts of things that, by the way, he doesn't ever fulfill, okay? Um, so this is what happened with these people. They turned away from Yahweh as the only God. They didn't turn away from him entirely. They still believe, oh, yeah, 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 he's God. This just sounds like an American to me, really. It's like, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. You know, do you believe? Oh, I believe in God. Yeah. But yet I do all of these things that the Bible says are wrong, right? I'm willing to elevate all of these other values in my life. Uh, to the point where they are they are a rival to God, if not over Almighty God, all right? So they didn't tear down the altars of the Canaanite gods because they wanted to appease them and gain their favor. Baal and Ashtra were the primary gods, which proved to be a snare to Israel for hundreds of years. Literally, they were setting up altars to Baal and Ashtra all the way down to the time that Israel got removed from the land in 586 B.C., this is hundreds of years later because we're right now, uh, when we're in the, the, the book of, of Judges, uh, we're in somewhere in the vicinity of 1200 or so. 
BC. So when I say hundreds of years, it's really pretty close to 1,500 and, and upwards toward 2,000 years of Baal worship, that they just continued to allow these false gods uh, to have uh, importance in their lives, right? So uh, these gods promised to, to make their worshipers fertile, which equates to se- success and wealth among agrarian people. So what is the lesson for us? So there's, there's the, the, the basic history, right? Uh, let's just start at the beginning. When you commit your life to Jesus, you have to repent of your sins, right? It's not just, I have a good feeling about Jesus. I believe in Jesus in my head. I accept Jesus up here. Or maybe my concept of accepting Jesus in my heart is really more of an emotional concept. But I don't really want to turn away from what the Bible calls sin. See, today, uh, sin is, is either erased altogether, everybody has their own truth and does their own thing, or the Bible is openly disregarded and uh, even disgraced by some folks, right? Um, so when I repent of sin, that means that there is a, a real change of heart and change of mind that results in a change in action. Friends, what you value, that's what you put, what you set your heart on, right? What you value, what you love, what you worship. And when we value Other things other than Almighty God, it leads our hearts astray. And that's why we say Jesus in your heart, because you turn from those values, whether they're cultural values or they're family values or they're just personal issues of your own temperament. And we'll get into some of those things. You turn away from those things. You respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the Word of God. That's why I'm up here every Sunday, not just giving you a bunch of opinions and and fun stories. Occasionally, I try to think of an anecdote that'll keep you, you going. But I'm reading a lot of scripture up here, and I am relating the entire holy history to you because I really, really desire the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and work in your mind and for him to do the work of conviction. I can't convict you. I'm just not that persuasive. In fact, if you were to bend or move uh, at the power of my persuasion, then it wouldn't be valuable, right? That's like a cult leader or something. Um, I want you to make up your own mind. I want you to make your own determination, your own decision, and I really, really want you to, and I want me to, repent. We need to turn away from the world and from our past and all these other things, right? Those are the gods of Canaan. Your past sinful habits are like these false gods of Canaan. If you failed to repent, then you will fail to live successfully, successfully for Jesus, right? Um, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Once again, you are turning away from sin and you are turning toward God and he is, uh, on the basis of your faith, drawing you ahead, empowering you to overcome sin day by day. Habitual sins are a constant source of stumbling for Christians. Uh, This is what the old preachers used to call besetting sins. Um, and that comes from a translation, the, the New King James, no, or King James, either one, of uh, Hebrews chapter 12. This is what it says in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, this just comes out of Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. It's talked about all these men and women of faith throughout history. He says, we have them as a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let's rid ourselves of every obstacle. That's every 
obstacle, everything that gets in the way, and the sin which so easily entangles us. There it is right there. Um, the New America, uh, New America Standard Bible translates it, easily entangles us. The old King James said, the sin which so easily besets us. So the old preachers used to call these besetting sins. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? So we do have that great cloud of witnesses, these examples, and they come from the Old Testament, and we're studying those folks now. We studied Joshua, and before him we studied Moses, and before him we studied Joseph right? And uh, it just depends on what the Lord leads me to do as to uh, which stories in Judges we take a look at. But these are the, the heroes. They, were, they weren't perfect. If you read about them, you see that they were far from perfect. But they did continue to follow Almighty God and live for Him. So, besetting sins, the sin that so easily entangles you. Um, addictions are like this. Uh, they, they're, they're things that get a hold of us. And if you've ever been to, uh, you know, any form of 12 step program, they have them in churches with a variety of different names. Um, or if you've been to a standard, you know, AA program, they have 12 step programs for everything, for every kind of addiction. And this morning, it has, is not my intention to just throw a bunch of addictions out there and see if I can find something that hits you. The reality is, if you're addicted to something, you know it. Right now, you're convicted right now. I'm not looking at anybody because I know anything that anybody in this room is addicted to. I'm I'm not, but I know that you know it. So when we're addicted to something and we're seeking to overcome it, we need help to overcome it. We need God's power to overcome it. Amen. In fact, the, you know, the 12-step program is essentially um, the Oxford revival movement from the earlier part of the 20th century denuded of any sort of Christian God. Right? The third step says that you've got to recognize that you can't do it, that you've got to rely on a higher power. Well, there's only one real higher power. Amen? Okay? It's Almighty God who came in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. We've got to completely rely on Him. We really do. So, again, if you have something that is addictive in your life, you're not going to be able to overcome it by yourself. Why is that? Because an addiction by its nature has a hold of your want to, right? So let's just, since I, I, I uh, grabbed Alcoholics Anonymous, let's just talk about alcohol addiction, right? Alcoholism. My father was an alcoholic. Um, you talk to somebody and say, you know, I think you might have an alcohol problem. They might say, I like alcohol. It's no problem. But one of the steps, I think the first step of the 12 steps, uh, says our lives had become unmanageable. See, gradually the addiction takes over. It can be a chemical like alcohol. It can be a behavior like sexual addiction, and there is such a thing, yes. Um, It can be gambling. Uh, It can be a, a prescription drug. It can be an illegal drug. There are a lot of different types of addictions. I'm using this as the prime example of a besetting sin because you're not gonna overcome it by yourself because your want to is wrapped around it. So you might get motivated, you know, a sermon gets preached or you read a book or, you know, something happens. You're like, yeah, man, I really, I'm gonna overcome this. I'm, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. 
And some people do, in fact, have the willpower and they, they push through. But I think the overwhelming majority of us have to recognize what those 12 steps say and that, you know, uh, our lives are unmanageable and we need to rely on God, Almighty God, to help not just get us out of it, but to keep us out of it. That's why in AA they, uh, they give them chips for each period of time that they overcome alcohol. So, I mean, they have like a 24-hour you know, chip, a one-week chip, and so forth. I've just been reading a series of novels that reacquainted me with AA. Um, as I was reading a series of novels where the hero is uh, had overcome alcoholism and was in the process of overcoming alcoholism, and, and he was in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, by the way, a worldwide phenomenon. And this guy in this book is in all these various uh, places around the globe, and he, you know, when he feels tempted, he looks for a meeting, Right? Isn't that interesting? A meeting. Yeah, that's fellowship. By the way, that's church. You see, they, they, they see what works. Church works. It really does. Now, I know us church people, we can be such hypocrites and such a pain and cause each other pain sometimes. But the reality is we need each other, y'all. We really do. We're just a bunch of people in need of helping each other to move ahead in the kingdom. That's what we are. Okay, I was going to call us a bunch of names, but I don't like doing that either. Um, yeah, I, I was going to call us losers, but I don't want to do that. All right. Besetting sins. Besetting sins can be issues of temperament. Pride is a besetting sin. I'm better than other people. Um, which, by the way, there is a certain type of egoism among alcoholics that has a tendency to look down on other people. Anger. I struggle with that all the time. I rarely get angry at individuals. I get angry at things all the time. I'm ready to break my computer on a regular basis. Um, yeah, I just, and that, you know, when you realize, okay, what's a besetting sin? You've certainly entertained it enough to reinforce it so it's there. But I'm going to tell you this frustration when things don't work, it goes back to me being a little itty bitty boy. My mom tells me a story about me being little and I'm trying to put my boots on and I'm smacking them against the ground, hollering and yelling at them. I'm two. I'm a lot older than two and I still want to have a fit every time something doesn't work. I just think things should work, shouldn't they? Shouldn't things just work? That's what I think, all right? I'm just telling you, that's a besetting sin for me, all right? Greed or wealth, money. Uh, as Pastor Craig mentioned a number of times today in his Bible study, um, money is not a sin, but the love of money is. And money can become a, an idol pretty quickly. Laziness, believe it or not. There's some people that just don't want to do anything. They're happy to let you do it all. They can watch work all day long. And then dependencies, addictions, I already mentioned all of that, all right? Um, so what are your besetting sins? Number next in our application, we've got to root these out of our lives. The first thing you've got to do is admit that it is actually sin. See, the easiest thing to get rid of temptation is you just give in. And then it's not a temptation anymore. And I think that's what people do today. You know, like, oh, I'm just, I'm so tempted. I'll just use an example of fasting. Uh, I've really not been doing it very much lately. <clears throat> but when you're fasting, yeah, man, you really want to eat, right? Now, eating is not bad. It's just you've made a decision that for a period of time you won't eat. But man, it's easy for me to start. So I had this, this, uh, this practice for a period of time during Lent several 
uh, Lent SPAC, where I was fasting every single Friday leading up to Good Friday because it just helped me to remember Good Friday and the suffering Jesus went through. So it was my goal. I always set a goal. I don't make God promises. I think that's dumb because I know that I'm apt to break the promise, right? So I set the goal, say, Lord, this is what I want to do. I want to fast throughout the day every Friday. And you know, there'd be times when I'd be starting to get really hungry and, and I'd think, well, when does sun go down? Really? And then I back it even further up because, listen, I can find justifications for everything. You know, I'm looking at the history of the church, and I'm seeing that they used to fast uh, on Fridays as well. And they backed it up to 3 p.m. I was like, 3 p.m. sounds good. I can do that. (laughs) And then they backed it up to noon. I was like, noon, that's good. That's my standard easy fast. I can go from, you know, six or seven the night before to noon the next day with no problem. See, but then it's just not really uh, an exercise of the will any longer, right? We've got to get into the, the, that habit of looking at sin and saying it's sin. Hey, Lord, I made the goal not to eat until sundown. So I need to wait until sundown. Sadly, as I mentioned earlier, many behaviors and attitudes are no longer considered wrong in our godless culture. So there's a lot of social pressure to do these things, okay? And again, I'm not going to list a bunch of things here because I don't want to get into a bunch of debates uh, about issues. I don't want to get off on the same things week in and week out. I think you're big people. I think that you can pay attention to the Holy Spirit and you understand the values shift that has happened in our culture there are a lot of things that are just not considered sin anymore. They're just lifestyles, right? Um, then you must agree with God's word, confess it as sin, and seek to amend your life with Jesus. So I've got to look it straight in the face and say, no, I can't keep doing this. This is, in fact, sin. Now I need your help, God, to get me out of it if it's an addiction. Okay? I can't justify it. See, that's the the sad thing about justifying yourself or justifying your behavior. It keeps you from being made right with God. God wants to justify you through the blood of Jesus, right? That's salvation. You confess Jesus as Lord, and he looks looks at you just as if I'd never sinned, as if you had never sinned. But see, if I won't admit that that is sin, if I would rather have God justify the sin, then I remain in it. And that's bad. Okay, so I got to look that in the face and do that. Um, I said that I wouldn't uh, personally uh, throw sins out there, but I'm going to read two passages of Scripture because I think the Word of God is convicting, okay? Uh, Both of these are uh, written under the inspiration of the pen of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. This is the New American Standard Bible. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those who habitually are habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he continues to say, and such were some of you but you were justified. You were made right, okay? I can't hang on to these things and say, well, this is okay because this is my truth. This is just my personality. This is just my temperament. This is just my orientation. This is a fallen world. We're gonna have all sorts of things wrong with us, amen? 
I mean, original sin is the idea that we all are influenced, impacted, inherit uh, sinful tendencies. We don't just say, well, I was born that way. Well, yeah, we all are. Okay? And we all need to come to Jesus and we all need to overcome. Here's the other one. This is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality. There it is again, right at the top of the list. Impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Oh, Daryl. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. That's right. Party spirit, factions. I'm a Democrat. You're a Republican. I'm a conservative. You're a liberal. We're all in all these little parties. Okay. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, not someone who stumbles, not someone who seeks to overcome and, and fight back a temptation, but those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in both instances, he says, you don't get into heaven if you hang on to these things, right? So these are our little gods, our little altars that we have set up in our lives that need to be torn down. Now, to conclude the message, and rather quickly, um, there are times and there are people who seek to overcome a certain addiction or a certain sinful habit, and they say, God, I just take it away. And he doesn't. And that happens all the time. I had a, a friend I haven't talked to in many years um, who, when he was 11 years old, uh, injected his first, I guess you would call it, dose of heroin. His older brother did it for him. In fact, I, I wrote a, a play and then a movie. Uh, you can look at it on uh, my YouTube. It's called Dark Persuasion. And there's a scene in the movie where an older character wraps his arm around a younger character and injects him with uh, heroin. Well, that actually happened. Uh, the characters that I had in this play were, were different, but this was this fellow's older brother. He wandered over to his house and he was 11 years old. And from that point on, he was pretty much addicted to heroin. And he had a dramatic conversion experience about a decade later when he was 21, 22. And he, at that point, just kicked heroin. That's a rarity. However, I do also know that that same fella continued to struggle against drug addiction and drug problems throughout the rest of his life, right? And presumably still does. So, the Lord can give you the power to overcome something like, like that, but that doesn't mean that there, there wouldn't be the possibility of spontaneous recovery where you grab a hold of that once again. This is the alcoholic that relapses or the drug addict that relapses. Well, what do I do when I'm down and out and crying out to the Lord and say, I do, I admit it, I need you, I want you to take this away? Then why doesn't he? And I've used addictions, but listen, this is a, a lot of different things, okay? You know, Lord, why am I like this? Why don't you just, I gave you my life, why don't you just take this away? Now, here is what I hope will be the power of, uh, of this sermon. God left the Canaanites in the land providentially. 
The Canaanites were there because they didn't fight them off, but God also let that happen on purpose. He didn't intervene and get rid of the Canaanites for the Israelites, even though the Israelites had really, 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 really fought a lot. He left them in the land. God did. Why? In order to teach subsequent generations how to fight. This is Judges 3, 1 and 2. Um, I have it written down or I could open it. Same translation of scriptures here. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it previously. God wants you to fight. Now, I know some of you aren't, some of y'all aren't fighters. Some of you are naturally. You just want to fight. Right? <laughs> it's, it's funny because I've got two different kinds of karate students. I've got the karate student that when I say, okay, we're going to be sparring, they're like, oh. And then there's Shiloh who brings his boxing gloves every single week. I mean, he's five and he's ready to fight. You got the kids and you, you put them in there, you know, and they spar and a kid gets hit or something happens and they just throw their gloves down and their head down and they, you know, they just, they just want to give up. And then you have the kids that pop right back up and they want to fight. So it would be hours of entertainment. Okay, about an hour of entertainment if you ever came to the karate club just to watch Shiloh spar somebody. Especially this little, there's a, another kid who's about, I think he's two years older than Shiloh. One or two years older. It's Adele, okay? Is he two years older? And he's bigger than Shiloh. He probably outweighs him by, what, 25 pounds, something like that, right? And so... They were sparring like several practices ago. And this kid just, you know, I mean, not, they didn't hurt him. They, they were wearing gear and everything like that. He just, you know, used his size and kind of mauled him a bit and Shiloh fell down. So I've seen kids fall down like that and they just, their shoulders slump and they just want to give up. And sometimes they'll exercise their will and they'll get up and, you know, not Shiloh, dude. He popped back up and he's ready to fight. Some of us are like that, right? And some of us are not. We have different temperaments. There's something in, I, I want to fight. This is why I can't, all these videos where, where people are being hurt or, you know, something's happening, whatever, I can't watch those because I can't do anything about it and it makes me mad. Like, it makes me mad mad. I can remember watching a movie not too long ago. Oh, it's been, I guess I'm old, so maybe it has been a long time ago now. Um, but it was a, a movie where uh, some dirty cops were taking a clean cop, a good cop, up into the hills to kill him. And I just thought, you know, I wish I could say that that has not happened, right? And, and I think this was supposed to be in L.A., and this is like probably up, you know, in the Hollywood Hills somewhere. Um, but they're making this guy dig his own grave. And I'm thinking, nah, -uh. I'm not digging, uh, I'm not digging anything. You're just going to have to shoot me right now. It's not going to happen. So the beauty of it was in this movie, and I'm just, you know, I'm just giving you kind of the way I am. I can remember when I was watching it, it was, I lived on a, in a house over here off of Avenue F, and I can remember exactly where I was sitting. The TV was right in front of me, and this guy has his shovel, and he jumps up and clocks him with that shovel. And I mean, he, he just, let's just say he took him out, okay, with a shovel. 
So, you know, your story this morning about the shovel is appropriate. And the shovel can be used to dig a grave or can become someone's grave. And I was sitting on my couch and I was like, yeah! <laughs> because I, I, I'm going to fight. I may not win, but I'm going to fight. We all need to learn to fight, whether you like to or not. But you're not doing it alone. Amen? As long as you and I are on earth, we've got to fight. God is, uh, God is God of this earth. He's the God of the universe. But Satan is called the God of this world. And really, that's from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The actual word there is God of this age. See, people start giving their values uh, over to, to Satan. They start listening to his lies, and he gains control of the age or the era. C.S. Lewis called the world enemy-occupied territory. Um, in fact, let me, let me give you that, that quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. He said, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king, that's Jesus, landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Uh, Mere Christianity was originally radio addresses, that C.S. Lewis did during World War II. So it was very appropriate for them. Um, our battles are spiritual in nature. That's what you need to recognize. You may battle depression. You may battle anger. You may battle addiction. But ultimately, our battles are spiritual in nature. Your struggles may seem very natural and very chemical, and that is indeed the explanation that is given. But see, those chemical reactions and interactions are byproducts, not the prime product. Um, listen to what the scripture says about this spiritual war. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there's lots of different battles. Chances are you're fighting some battles right now, right? I just want to encourage you to fight the good fight of faith, and I want to give you the promise from the Word of God that we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. Amen? If God is for us, finish it. That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer to it? Nobody. Man, yeah. So fight the good fight of faith and refuse to return to whatever that sin has been. Uh, the final verse, uh, it's in our bulletin, which by the way, uh, there's only a few of those left. I print a few of them so that you guys can, especially you are visiting, can give us some feedback if you would like to. Um, but this is in the bulletin. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Amen? So friend, don't give up. Even if you have failed, even if you've been hurt, even if you're struggling, don't give up. God has not and will not give up on you. Amen?